this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Michael Cranish on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. I picked this book for this week because Fourth of July is coming up. That is Independence Day here in the United States, as those of you who are in the United States know. Jefferson was clearly important for the independence of the United States. He wrote the Declaration of Independence, as I'm sure, again, many of you know. This book is particularly interesting because it shows Jefferson not as the writer of the Declaration, uh, but as someone trying to fight a war. Uh, The British had invaded and invaded a couple of times, three times actually, Virginia. Jefferson was the governor of Virginia, and he was responsible for its defense. Whether he performed adequately in that role is something that his contemporaries debated and his political enemies made a lot of hay out of. I say during the interview that he was, during his presidential campaign, sort of swift-boated, if you get that reference. But in any event, Michael does a terrific job of telling the story of Jefferson and putting him in the right context. It's a very readable book. I hope that you go out and buy it. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Michael. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. It's beautiful here in Iowa. You are in Boston, is that correct? Actually, I'm in uh, Washington, the Washington the Boston Globe. I didn't know that. I knew you worked for the Globe. I thought, yeah, you work for the Washington Bureau there. That's right. There's a lot going on there. There is. Yeah. It's a, I used to live in Washington, and there was too much for me, so I moved to Iowa. There's less going on here. Anyway, I should tell our uh, listeners that we're talking to Michael Cranish today about his new book, Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. I learned a lot from this book, uh, primarily because uh, it's a great book, and also because uh, the depth of my ignorance is uh, truly fantastic, because I don't know a lot about the revolutionary era. I bet that many listeners to this show know more than I do about it. They'll certainly know a lot more after we talk to Michael for an hour about this terrific book. Let me ask you, Michael, to begin the interview uh, by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm the Deputy Bureau Chief in Washington of the Boston Globe, and I've been in Washington for the Globe for about 20 years. Um, I have always wanted to be a journalist, and in this position I've been able to uh, cover the White House and Congress and presidential campaigns and covered more than a few uh, Iowa caucuses out your way. Um, that's usually the reason. I think that's the only reason I've gotten to Iowa, to be honest with you. That's but the only reason anybody ever gets to Iowa. Every four years. Right? No, I'd love to return, do the, maybe do the ride across Iowa one day. But um, uh, I've always had a great interest in uh, political journalism and history. When you write about politics in Washington, you know, a lot of ways you're at the front porch of history. If you're covering the White House, covering Congress, 
and covering presidential campaigns, so you're always looking into what this means in an historical context. And as a journalist, one of the things that I've always loved to do is to write in-depth profiles of presidential candidates. So my paper has been kind enough to let me, um, every four years, spend a lot of time, sometimes several months, researching the, the history of a person who's running for the presidency. We have a lot of interest because in our backyard is the New Hampshire primary coming right after the Iowa caucuses. So we have a lot of attention on the folks who run for president. And so as a result, we spend a lot of effort trying to tell readers who are these people, how are they shaped, what's their history. And so frequently I've found that in writing the life story of presidential candidate, I need to go to archives, understand the history of where they and their family came from and how that shaped them. And so over time, that led me to have a great interest in writing about an historical subject not wrapped up in today's politics. And eventually that led me to focus on a book about the Revolutionary War and Thomas Jefferson. And that's a little bit of why I ended up writing this particular book. Yeah, I mean, it's as if you uh, are in the kind of laboratory of uh, presidential politics and presidential activities. So I suppose you're uniquely able to write a, a book about this sort of theory. I've never even come close to it. I, I've been to the White House. I, I used to walk past the White House. Does that count? No. I, <laughs> so, you know, I think it's actually a terrific, terrific experience and it gives you uh, great insight into uh, the way that world works. I, again, I have no idea. Why, um, why Jefferson? Well, after I had done, I had co-authored the Boston Globe's uh, biography of John Kerry, the 2004 Democratic presidential candidate. And I did about a third of that book. It was all the historical portion where I dig at our archives, did a lot of historical research. After that point, I thought at some point I want to do an historical subject. And at some point, I can't remember exactly when, Marshall, but I came across a nugget of information, and that was that there was a American general, Benedict Arnold, who turned traitor and joined the British. And what did he do after he turned traitor and joined the British? What he did was he came up with this plan to invade Virginia with a 27-ship convoy armada that went down to Virginia with 1,600 men. And Jefferson, this is about almost five years after he signed the Declaration of Independence, he was the governor of Virginia. He was in his second one-year term. And he did not know that Benedict Arnold was leading this great fleet to invade Virginia. And eventually, as I tell the story in the book, he had to flee Richmond, and we can get into this a little bit later. But the bottom line is that I, I came across this nugget about the traitor Benedict Arnold, one of the most reviled men in American history, uh, going after one of the most revered men in American history, Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And that just got my juices going. I just thought there's an inherent drama there about the Revolutionary War that I had not been familiar with. And I looked into whether there was a book about it. There wasn't. Talked to historians who were familiar with the kind of work that I've done, and they said, you know, this sounds like a, a story that should be told. And I began inquiring, investigating what was going on there. And basically, like, like a lot of books, and it starts with this question. So I had this nugget of information, and it led to this question, how could Jefferson have gotten in this position nearly five years after he signed the declaration to have to be on the run from the British? Mm -hmm. And I thought, and I wanted to answer that question. And I know as a journalist, when you have a question that you just feel like you need to get answered, that's the way you get onto good stories. You just, you've got this curiosity that's got to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not an academic exercise. It really is trying to understand what happened here. And I felt that if I could answer that question, I'd have hopefully not just a really sort of thrilling narrative because it's inherently dramatic, but also something that would tell us something 
about the revolution we may not know and better understand Jefferson and what shaped Jefferson, because mm-hmm. these events happened 20 years before he became president. Yeah. So I, that's what really got me going and why I got into this particular story. Yeah, well, uh, I am quite sympathetic with that. You know, you pursue a problem. You try to figure the, out what happened. There's some paradox, something like that, some anomaly, and you try to make it right. And that, that is, I think, where a lot of uh, good research questions come from. And you've done a marvelous job of answering the, the question of, uh, you know, Jefferson's uh, activities during the Revolutionary War and Benedict Arnold and so on and so forth. Let me um, ask you to, just for the benefit of, uh, let's just say me, uh, but some of our listeners, I imagine, tell us a little bit about Jefferson's biography uh, in the sense that, you know, where was his from? What was his background? How did he get into politics? That kind of thing. Sure. Well, Thomas Jefferson was born uh, in the middle of the 18th century, and this was a time when he really believed that he would be part of the British aristocracy. There was no reason that when he was growing up in a small little um, area in the foothills of the Blue Ridge of Virginia that he would become a revolutionary. Uh, he had every reason to think that he would be a man of privilege. Uh, his family had some land. They weren't hugely wealthy, but they certainly had land. And in fact, the family property was by a river. His family home was called Shadwell. And there was a small mountain that was part of the property. And this was the small mountain that became Monticello that he eventually uh, did inherit. So it wasn't even a village that we know today at at Charlottesville, which is now a city. It was just a scattering of farms, rural area, plantation. And he really grew up in a a very rural area that sort of was looking westward. This was well inland. Um, The capital, the colonial capital at this time, was Williamsburg, which today people know as the beautifully restored uh, colonial capital. Um, But he grew up in this setting, and when he was growing up, his um, he was very interested. He was very curious, very intellectual. He was sent to a very small school nearby where he learned different languages, had a great uh, intellectual curiosity. And what he wanted to do was to go to Williamsburg, to the College of William and Mary, and to become a very learned gentleman and then go back to what he envisioned would probably be a plantation near where he grew up um, and have this kind of aristocratic life. So he did go to the College of William and Mary. Uh, and he did learn at the, uh, the feet of some very learned gentlemen. The teachers he had uh, were very crucial in his life. And he said at some point that these men were like uh, a father to him. He, um, uh, he learned from these gentlemen uh, at this time of enlightenment to question things, to not just accept the, the order of things, but if there was some reason to question things, to go ahead ask those sharp questions. And so this, from a very young age, when he was about 17 years old, he was imbued with this idea that he should be questioning, that yes, he was part of this aristocracy, but did not accept always the established order of things. So it shaped him a lot. He was growing up in the colonial capital, and this was a sort of, you know, today, if you've been to Williamsburg, this lovely um, restored uh, colonial capital, it looks very ordered. But if you can imagine Jefferson being there, there was also a sort of a raucous nature to the town. They'd have times when all of the people would come in for the meeting of the general court, um, and there was a lot of gambling, there was a lot of horse racing, and Jefferson later in his life wrote this wonderful letter to his grandchild in which he said there was a time in his life he wasn't sure which direction he would go. Would it be um, someone who would bet on horses? Would it be someone who would um, fight for the rights of the fellow citizens? And he said, fortunately for him, 
he did have these great teachers, and he did um, decide to go on this path where he did eventually become a revolutionary, but it really was to try to be a man of enlightenment, of learning and understanding uh, what the world was all about and questioning and using that great um, uh, education that he got for for a higher purpose. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's where he came from. And it took a long period of time, I and mean, this is this is early. This was many years before the Revolutionary War in Virginia, and there was a gradual process by which Thomas Jefferson did become a revolutionary. Very gradual. He had a friend of his, Patrick Henry, and Patrick Henry um, was about nine years older than Jefferson, and Jefferson did watch because. Henry was also at the scene. He became friends with Patrick Henry in Williamsburg. It was actually in the, the doorway of the House of Burgesses, which was the colonial version of the legislature, when Patrick Henry gave one of many famous speeches. And this was a speech um, a decade before the, the Revolutionary War, in which Patrick Henry was questioning the British right to tax uh, certain things, the Stamp Act, um, without the kind of representation that Henry thought should be there. And the Speaker of the House of Burgesses cried out, treason, treason, mm -hmm. as Patrick Henry was making the speech. And Thomas Jefferson's right there in the doorway listening as Henry's making the speech. Jefferson wasn't a revolutionary at this point, but he was picking all this up, you know, learning to be a questioning individual, watching and listening as Patrick Henry is making the speech. Gradually, year by year, if you read Jefferson's letters and watch what's going on, you can see the revolutionary thoughts growing. And eventually, he does begin to agree uh, with Patrick Henry and others that there should be more representation. What's very interesting to me, I grew up with this sort of shorthand history, like a lot of people, about Jefferson writing the Declaration um, in 1776. But it's earlier in this period that really Jefferson's revolutionary thoughts are being formed. And in fact, it was a couple of years earlier when he did write what I think really was his most revolutionary document. And this was a document called A Summary uh, of the Rights of uh, British America. What, is the, what are the rights of those in what was then called British America? And Jefferson basically was speaking to the king, and he was saying to the king, in essence, indirectly, that it's okay that if there's this legislature here in British America, but it should have the same rights as the Parliament in Britain. We could all be under the king, he was saying at a certain point, but we need to have the same rights as Parliament. We can't be being told uh, what to do by the Parliament. We should be sort of our own separate Parliament. Um, and he was telling the king, basically warning the king, if this is not allowed, then revolution will follow. Mm -hmm. And that's, in fact, what happened. And that's what set the stage, and that's what caused other others in the Continental Congress in Philadelphia to eventually say, we've read these writings of Thomas Jefferson. He's the one who should write the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. how, how did uh, Jefferson, we know that Jefferson ends up, and importantly in your narrative, uh, as governor to Virginia. How does he actually become involved in formal politics, electoral politics? Well, after he wrote the Declaration um, in 1776, and of course Virginia declared its own independence as a state, which in a lot of ways Jefferson thought would be more important when the states, he saw this as 13 colonies becoming states under this sort of broad um, federal framework, but he thought it was very important state by state, and Virginia was the largest and most powerful state. Patrick Henry became the first governor. After Henry's terms were over, um, they did turn to Jefferson. Jefferson was a well-known figure. Um, some of the people did not know they wrote the Declaration. Others did. But given his prominence, um, they turned to him to be the second governor of Virginia. Jefferson said that he was reluctant to do so, 
everybody eventually agreed, and there was an election basically between three people. It wasn't a popular election of the populace. It was among those members of the legislature. They selected Jefferson. Mm -hmm. So reluctantly in 1779, uh, Jefferson says he was elected anyway, he did become governor of Virginia. And this is in the midst of the Revolutionary War. Um, Virginia at this point had suffered only one relatively small invasion during Henry's uh, governorship. As Jefferson became governor, there was a second invasion. Again, it was a relatively minor invasion. Um, the British came to Virginia. They plundered a bit on the coast. And then they quickly turned around and went southward to help out a much larger British force and battle that was going on in the Carolinas. So as Jefferson's governor, there really hadn't been a, a huge clash between the British and the Americans in Virginia. Uh, and he hoped that would be the case. But Jefferson did know if the British did set their sights on Virginia and decided to stay and try to take over all Virginia, that Virginia would be ill-equipped, mm -hmm. that the Navy was basically worthless, and that although there was militia, it wasn't nearly well-equipped enough to uh, beat back a large and determined British force. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we leave Jefferson's biography and talk about uh, his activities during the war, and particularly during the uh, couple of invasions that followed the initial one, um, I think it's important to point out that uh, he he, uh, he is not really the statue that uh, we ordinarily think of him as, uh, in the sense that uh, he was sort of a full-blooded person of his time, and we kind of tend to forget this. We forget this about a, a lot of, I think, uh, American heroes. Uh, and I'm, I'm referring specifically to uh, his, his uh, I guess, many of his uh, stated attitudes about things and actually practice. I mean, he owned a lot of slaves, for example. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that certainly I'm like a lot of people, you know, are drawn to this question of the conundrum. How could you write that all men are created equal and then yourself own slaves? I think if you write a book about Jefferson, you have to get into this issue no matter what the topic of the book is. And it does play throughout the course of what I write about. Um, and in this case, uh, he Jefferson knew that this would be an issue that would dog him the rest of his life that historians would then write about. And he tried to explain himself repeatedly. He did, throughout the course of his life, do a number of things where he said, and he owned over time, not at one time, but over the course of his life, about 600 slaves, mm -hmm. some he inherited through his wife, through the marriage uh, to Martha. Um, so he was a major slave owner, and this was a major source of how he was able to build Monticello, um, have the wealth that he did, although he later, when he died, he actually was in debt, and the family had to sell off the slaves. Um, so during various times of his life, he came up with various proposals that he thought would perhaps end slavery to a certain extent in America. He said, let's end the slave trade. He said, at some point, perhaps we can send slaves somewhere else and they'll have their own colony. And he did put forward several proposals. The bottom line, however, is that other Virginians objected. He didn't um, see this through to the extent to try to show leadership to say, well, I'll release my slaves. He kept his slaves. And gradually he said that this could not be solved in his lifetime. He said it would have to be solved by others. Mm -hmm. And he acknowledged numerous times in his life how bedeviled he was by this issue. Early in his life, he would blame others for not wanting to do something to resolve it. But the bottom line is he kept his slaves, and he said it would be left to future generations to solve. Mm -hmm. And, of course, as we know, the way future generations solved it was that there was this incredible civil war 
Virginia was um, on the side of wanting to keep the slaves, and they lost that war, but at tremendous cost to the entire country. Um, so by not solving that problem earlier, uh, the country went into uh, this great crisis that in some ways we're still dealing with um, as a nation. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly anybody writing about Jefferson you know, should note this, and I do try to describe that because it does play a role in the revolution. Ironically, um, when some of the Virginians wanted to declare independence from Britain, it was because they became concerned that Britain would free the slaves. Mm-hmm. And when, in fact, there was the Revolutionary War and the colonial governor of Virginia was fighting the revolutionaries, he issued this proclamation that basically said um, certain slaves will be freed if they fight on the British side. And this absolutely disturbed a lot of Virginians and a lot of Virginians who've been saying that there should, they should be fighting revolution for liberty said only to a certain extent, not liberty for slaves. So you had this extraordinary scene where you had some of the Virginia um, Minutemen wore on their sleeves this famous saying by Patrick Henry, liberty or death. And the British, who brought some former some slaves who fled to the British to become free, the British gave these slaves frocks that said liberty to slaves, mm-hmm. this sort of echo of what the revolutionaries were saying and, and basically saying this is hypocritical, mm-hmm. that if you want liberty, it should be liberty for all. And the reality is that it wasn't liberty for all. The Virginians, the revolutionaries, basically as part of an agreement that was made during this, the declaration, the compromise um, in Philadelphia, they said to the Southerners, yes, you'll be able to keep slaves. So the, in, the, in the Declaration of Independence, they did obviously not grant freedom to slaves. So when Jefferson wrote All Men Are Created Equal, um, it was only basically white men. And mm-hmm. perhaps he was saying, you know, they're equal to white men in Britain, but clearly slaves were not free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I just find it very interesting. I always find it very, very interesting to see people uh, try to deal with the issues of their time. Actually, I was debating this recently with somebody, and, you, you know, I'm reasonably certain. I, I, I'm not a big stone thrower when it comes to things like this. I'm I'm not going to pass judgment on, on Jefferson or anybody else because I'm pretty sure that I'm on the wrong side of a lot of issues right now, but I don't even know it. You know, in 70 years' time, 100 years' time, people will look back on some of the things we say, and they'll say, those people are barbarians. I, don't, I have no idea what those issues are. Maybe it's meat-eating. I don't eat a lot of meat, though. Oh, you know, Marshall, there's some people who will say, you know, who will try to defend him on this and say um, that we can't, you know, that was then and this is now and so forth. But what I would say is that I've read many, many of Jefferson's letters and his writings, and he knew this was an issue yeah. that historians would come back to him. So he doesn't try to apologize, if you will. He, he, he wrote some pretty awful things, if you look back, um, that they're very unfortunate. When you look back at some of the things he did say about blacks, he denigrated them. And later in his life, he said, well, maybe he was wrong about some of that. Um, but he knew this would be an issue. He doesn't try to apologize the way perhaps some people might try for other actions of the past. So I think it's, it's yeah, no, I, part of the story. And, and as an historian, you know, I think it's, it's absolutely fair to say, um, you know, obviously this was terrible what happened with slavery, and also to say there are other things they did that were very good. And it, what, in my uh, view in writing, is I just let the whole story tell itself. Yep. And I don't actually, unlike some historians, I don't view my book as an argument one way or the other. I think the story itself tells itself. It's compelling, mm-hmm. and you know, readers can obviously pick up on things that I'm writing about. I point out the inconsistencies and so forth, but I don't try to hit people over the head and say, and hey, look, this was wrong, because it will be, it will be self-apparent that certain things happened and, and uh, they can draw their conclusions from that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very 
good way of putting it. I mean, you don't want to refrain in all instances from passing judgment on people in the past. After all, they are kind of part of our moral community. But on the other hand, you know, we really want to try to understand why they did and said the things that they did. And Jefferson is a good example because he wrote a lot of what he thought down. So we can kind of examine a late 18th century mind trying to deal with this paradox of, uh, you know, what is really the, the world's first modern democracy and uh, the institution of slavery that was so deeply entrenched in mm-hmm. the United States. And it's, a, it's really a fascinating thing to think about. He also had some peculiar, as my wife pointed out last night, she remembered this, uh, he also had some what we think of as kind of uh, peculiar attitudes toward women. I, it, according to my wife, he did not educate his daughters. He, he, he refused to do this. Um, do you know anything about this? Well, at the time, it would have been very unusual for a woman to be educated at university and so forth. But I think in a Jefferson family, if you grew up in this very intellectual household with more books in almost any home, perhaps any home in America or one of the most uh, extensive libraries, that you would be educated in that way. Mm-hmm. So they were probably better educated in that sense than a lot of uh, yeah. women. And um, so Jefferson, uh, I'm sure, educated his daughters in a, in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they benefited uh, from that. And, of course, he founded the, what became the University of Virginia, which is he wanted the public. Although I don't know that women went uh, at, the, at the beginning, obviously. But uh, he, he was a stronger believer in having certain kinds of public education than a lot of other people. He mm-hmm. disdained the College of William and Mary because he thought eventually, even though he was educated there, because he felt that was not providing – a, a full education, free of religious, um, you know, there'd be a religious overlay to what you're learning and so forth. So he thought one of his greatest achievements was the founding of the University of Virginia, which is just, you can see, just on the mountain from Monticello. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, this, this will be a bit of a, um, of a, as they say on the Internet, a derail. But I want to ask you this question because it's been appearing in the papers here a lot. There's been a debate going on in the uh, Iowa City paper about whether the founding fathers um, – believed they were founding a Christian nation? Now, I think this is a badly put question and has no answer um, for that reason, but can you shed any light on Jefferson's idea about the relationship between Christianity and the United States? Sure. Um, And this plays a part of role in the book, because obviously Jefferson, he said he wanted three things on his tombstone for his greatest accomplishments. Uh, And one was being fought, the Declaration of Independence author. One was, as I mentioned, uh, founding the University of Virginia. And the third was writing the statute for religious freedom in Virginia. So he didn't mention being president. He mentioned being governor of Virginia, which we'll get to in a minute, which is obviously not something he wanted to dwell on. He was a forceful believer in religious uh, freedom, not just toleration, but freedom. And uh, I don't think he would have said today that we're founded as a, quote, Christian nation. And the reason I say that is because he's sort of known as, although this was the Virginia statute, he's also given a lot of credit for what we now have as his famous phrase of the wall of separation between church and state. Jefferson, um, if anyone's going to be called uh, someone who would have said, you know, we want to be separate really separate from that. He's the one who wrote that famous letter to the Baptist in Danbury, Connecticut, saying that there should be this wall of separation um, between church and state. He was what we might call, what some people call a theist, and he actually went through the um, the Gospels and clipped out some of the more um, remarkable things that are said to have happened and said he wanted 
to have his own sort of Bible that would be the moral teachings of Jesus, but not some of the um, supernatural elements uh, that, of what he considered supernatural elements of the Bible, of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. So uh, he was criticized. Some people thought that uh, basically he was an atheist, which he would have not agreed with. But uh, people did call him a deist, which is sort of similar to Uh, Some people say Jefferson, if he were alive today, would be a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church, for example, just to give an example. So um, I don't think that he would have said that we're founded as a Christian nation. Um, Obviously, there's a wonderful book um, about this by John Meacham, and there's other books as well uh, that go into this. This is a whole other show that you could talk about this, about sort of what's the American gospel and what's, you know, how are we founded. Certainly, um, there's a lot of references to... um, uh, well, not, he doesn't directly talk about this, but this is, whole, this is really a whole other show. But that's the, that's the shortest answer I can give you, mm-hmm. is that some people actually criticized him over this, but I think he would, have, he would have said himself that that's not the way he would have seen it. Others would have maybe disagreed, mm-hmm. um, but since we're talking just about Jefferson, that's the answer I'd give you. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good one. So let's move on to uh, Jefferson as governor. What does he do? Uh, well, let me ask this first. What were the obligations of the governor of Virginia um, uh, vis-a-vis the defense of Virginia and the realm? Well, as, as governor of Virginia, obviously you are, you're ultimately responsible for the defense of your state. Um, Jefferson had concerns about having a strong standing army. Uh, obviously there was a continental army that was fighting the British throughout uh, the United States, and he uh, did send a lot of Virginians to that. But when it came to Virginia itself, he thought that the militia, the regular men of Virginia, uh, would come out with the arms that they had and would be able to defend Virginia um, against a British invasion force. Um, he really believed very strongly in this. This was central to his thinking. The problem is is that if the British come in with all their cannons and great ships, the militia, a lot of them had uh, hunting rifles or muskets. They had hatchets. They had swords. There were, the state did have some cannons and so forth, but it wasn't nearly enough to fight off a quick, uh, nimble, powerful uh, British force. They might have more men who could assemble with the militia than the British had, but communication was difficult, um, and so it would be tough to fight off a, a huge British force unless you had the Continental Army come in, which eventually did happen, but not at the moment of the invasion that, that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Why did they? This is an important point, so I'll um, understrike it a little bit. Why, were, why was Jefferson so fearful of standing armies? In fact, a lot of people, especially people who are uh, sort of passionate Republicans, that's Republican in the 18th century sense, as in Republicanism in Cicero in Rome. Uh, they didn't like standing armies. Why not? Well, Jefferson's concern, uh, obviously he wanted there to be an army that would fight off the British so the Americans could win the revolution. But in general, he felt, especially once the war was over, he didn't want it to be a really powerful standing army because he was concerned it would be creating another tyrant that would be, would be replacing perhaps a British tyrant with a new tyrant in America. So that was his great concern. He'd seen that happen elsewhere where the army becomes all-powerful, and that becomes the new tyranny. Mm-hmm. So that was his concern. Yes, he wanted an army, obviously, to fight the British. Mm-hmm. But what he preferred in Virginia, for example, was militia. They'd come out, they'd fight, they'd go back, and that the government would not have to face um, a more powerful force from within um, an army that became too powerful. So that was his, his main concern. Later, when he became president... He established a military training academy at what was then the fort of West Point. Mm-hmm. He wanted officers to be thinking like him. Yes, there would be military defense. He wanted a, a good, strong defense. Um, but he was concerned that it might – he didn't want it to be so overwhelming that they might overthrow a, 
a, the American government. So we always had that concern. It's a fine line balancing that. Um, and you can take quotes from Jefferson um, that you, you can use to argue on almost any side of any question. I, if you put two people on your show together, I have no doubt that they could pull out accurate quotes from Jefferson to argue both sides because you need to understand the context, what was happening at the time. Um, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in the story here, but the bottom line was Jefferson called himself a, quote, anti-federalist. Mm -hmm. And later when he uh, won the presidency against a federalist candidate in 1800, he considered that a second American Revolution. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it gives you a sense that that's the bottom line. Then you have to explain what was happening at the time and why he felt that way. So we can come back to that later if we have time. You, you make a, actually a very good point and one worth dwelling on for a second about uh – being able to pull quotes, because that's really what uh, has been discovered in this back and forth in the Iowa City paper about the Founding Fathers and religiosity, is that the Internet is a vast well of primary sources, and with the aid of a search engine, you can find someone like Jefferson saying almost anything you want. Well, Jefferson wrote 19,000 letters <laughs> we have. He wrote more. That's what we have in his lifetime, and he lived a long time. So imagine, you know, over the course of your life, you're writing to different people. Maybe you're trying to appeal to how they think, and so you might write something, you know, one way and something different to another way, and then a third way later in your life and so forth. Um, so, yes, you can pull out you can pull out all sorts of letters. But I think if you look at over the course of his life, he is consistent in certain things. So there, yeah. there you know, he obviously learns from his experiences and writes and reflects on that, and he changes his view on certain things. So I've tried it, you know, in writing a history to understand overall the course of his life, you know, what best reflects his thinking. Sure. So um, the British are coming. Benedict Arnold is uh, going to invade. What does Jefferson do? And this is the heart of the book uh, that I write about. It's, it's December of 1780, four and a half years after the Declaration of Independence. Benedict Arnold is coming into Virginia with 27 ships, with 1,600 men. The capital has been moved to Richmond at Jefferson's uh, wish, and Jefferson's in his governor's townhouse in this sort of frontier town of less than a thousand people, pretty poorly defended, he has no idea the British are coming. And a messenger uh, ascends one of the hills of Richmond, and he gives Jefferson a message that a fleet has been spotted uh, in the bay about 100 miles away. And the messenger says, we don't know um, if they're French allies or British enemies. And Jefferson's aghast, and he tells the messenger, I need more information uh, I'm reluctant to call it the militia in full force if it might just be an allied fleet or some foraging party, as Jefferson writes. Um, and so he does not swiftly call out a large number of militia. This greatly comes back to haunt him. And later on in his life, many people were criticizing him for not taking strong action at this moment when it might have made a difference. Messenger goes back, takes a lot of time to get communication and more information. And the bottom line is, is that Arnold's able to easily come up uh, the James River uh, fights off some militia that gather. At one point, some militia do uh, hold him off, but he then goes further up the James River. And the bottom line is, is that Jefferson, Jefferson does not know what's happening, and Arnold's easily able to go all the way up to Richmond. And sort of at the last moment, Jefferson's told it is a British invasion fleet, um, and he probably knows by this time it's being led by uh, Benedict Arnold, whom Jefferson once had a lot of faith in, and once called a fine sailor when he was on the American side. And Jefferson has to flee Richmond. Um, and so he takes his wife and his children, and in fact, um, they've just had an, a young uh, infant, which was born uh, weeks earlier. Jefferson's very concerned for their safety. He takes them up the James River further, puts them at a house that he had himself lived in as a child, 
then he's concerned that's not safe from the British, takes them further upriver and leaves them at that property of the Jefferson family. And then he comes all the way back to Richmond. He has this spyglass, and he looks out over the river, and he sees that the British are there. Um, the British have easily fought off the militia that have gathered in Richmond. And as one uh, Hessian officer allied with the British later wrote, uh, half the place was in flames. Holy places were plundered. It's a great conflagration at Richmond. One of Jefferson's slaves who was left behind at Jefferson's uh, townhouse writes that within 10 minutes there wasn't a white man left in Richmond. Mm. The British force overwhelms the Virginia militia that are there. There's not a lot Jefferson can do. He's been ineffectual, unable to stop the British. I don't think he was a coward because he doesn't then run off to the hills himself. He left his wife and his children at a place of safety. He'd come back. He's trying for about three days to round up the militia. He's trying to get a Continental Army officer who's basically said, um, you're in charge of the, um, the military forces in Virginia, tries to communicate with them, is unable to reach him for several days. But Jefferson is able to get papers stored in certain places to keep them out of the hands of the British. He goes up to an armory and makes sure that certain arms are stored. So he's doing a lot of things, um, pretty dangerous, on the scene. He later writes that he was unassisted by a single military aide in three days of running around during the rain. On one point, um, his horse that had been on for a long period of time just simply can't go any further. Mm -hmm. um, so he goes and finds another horse. So he does a lot of things as best he can. He'd been ineffectual in being unable to stop the British, but he does stay on the scene and try to do what he can. Eventually, the British do leave um, Richmond, and they've taken a lot of plunder. Um, one of the Hessian officers writes that they'd taken 33 ships seized with plunder and taken it from Richmond and gone back to an encampment that they had established um, away from Richmond. And then Jefferson finally does come back into Richmond and see all the damage that's done. And then, as I describe in the book, um, there's weeks and weeks in which Jefferson is trying to uh, bring up the militia, but he doesn't go far enough. And there's this Continental Armory officer that I, just, I talk about in the book, Baron von Steuben, who had been a top aide to George Washington, who Jefferson had said, you're in charge of military now in Virginia. And Baron von Steuben is constantly upset that Jefferson's not doing more to call up the militia or to force Virginians to give their horses to help fight uh, the British. So there's this great clash. It takes many weeks, and finally, Jefferson's so concerned about what's happening in Virginia, what's the danger that his family is in. Finally, he gets word of a mutiny in a western county, and he sort of has an epiphany. And so he sends a letter to this um, militia leader out in the western part of Virginia saying, I don't care what you I'm paraphrasing here, I don't care what you have to do. Go to these uh, men's houses, take them out of their beds. If they're not there, go back night after night, take them out of their beds one by one finally realizes the need to take tougher action uh, to make sure more militia do come out. But the bottom line is it's, it's really too late. The legislature whom Jefferson has called to Richmond to take stronger action eventually has to flee Richmond. So there's several flights. I call the book Flight to Monticello, but there are numerous flights from Richmond that Jefferson and the legislature have to take. So finally, Jefferson and the legislature decide that the safest thing to do is to uh, basically abandon Richmond, the capital, extraordinary scene, and go to Charlottesville, which is where um, Jefferson grew up and where Monticello is, and this is in the foothills in the Blue Ridge, and they felt that that would be safe. 
And the idea was that the legislature there in Charlottesville would take action to enact laws to make it easier to call it the militia, to put penalties on those who didn't come out, to make it easier to seize horses from Virginians to fight the British. So Jefferson's at Monticello, and the legislature is meeting at a tavern in Charlottesville. And what they don't know, in fact, that the British have gained intelligence. They know this is happening. Mm -hmm. So the British forces, led by an officer named Bannister Talton, Arnold has now left the scene. So Bannister Talton, at the direction of Lord Cornwallis, comes into Charlottesville, and he um, is seen at a certain point at a tavern. And there's a friend of Jefferson's, very luckily for Jefferson, who sees the British force there, and he guesses that the, um, the forces are on their way to Charlottesville, and he's very concerned that Jefferson himself at Monticello will be seized by the British. So this man, Jack Jewett, gets on his horse. He rides through a back way to warn Jefferson that the British are coming. And if you know American history, there's this famous uh, scene up in Massachusetts where Paul Revere mm -hmm. um, made his famous ride, the British are coming. This ride of Jack Jewett, where he warns Jefferson the British are coming, really should be equally famous. And maybe I've done some small part to try to bring more attention to that. But it's certainly a pivotal you know, point in the book where Jack Jewett does go to Jefferson and says the British are coming up to leave Monticello. At that point, Jefferson tells his wife and, and children to leave, and he sends them on up ahead. But he stays. He wants to remain on the scene to gather up important documents. Um, and in fact, he later writes, in my flight, I stuffed in papers where I could. So that's part of the reason I call my book Flight to Monticello. Mm -hmm. Jefferson himself referred to this as his flight. The legislature, meanwhile, in Charlottesville, finally hears word the British are coming there. So at the last minute, legislators flee. Some of them tarry too long, and they stay behind, and they're caught by the British forces and taken as prisoners. And they flee over the mountains to a town called Stanton, over the Blue Ridge. And then finally, a second um, Virginian hears that the British are coming. He does not know that Jack Jewett's already made his ride to, to uh, Monticello. Mm -hmm. This person then also goes to Monticello and said, I've seen the British there coming. You must leave him. He's surprised that Jefferson's still there and urges Jefferson. Jefferson has this sort of serene personality. He's a great horseman, and he believes that even with a moment's notice, if he gets on his horse and dashes through the woods, that he'll be able to invade a British fleet, a British troop, which won't know the way through the woods like Jefferson does. So it's only at the last minute Jefferson ascends this hill above Monticello he looks through his spyglass, doesn't see the British, and then turns around, and then finally he sees the glint of the swords of the British cavalry that's coming up the mountain. So only at the last moment he does decide, yes, I really do need to leave Monticello. So then, then he finally takes flight from Monticello. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, what would have happened to Jefferson had he been caught? Just speculate for a moment. The speculation as to what would have happened is that he might have been taken as a prisoner of war. Maybe he would have been sent to the Tower of London and hanged. Uh, it, it's hard to say uh, what would have happened absolutely. If he had been captured, it would have been a great blow. And may, maybe or maybe not uh, the British knew that he was the author of the Declaration of Independence. What they did know was that he had been the governor of the largest and most powerful state in the United States. So a great prize. There's no president of the United States at this point. There's the governors of, of the states, and Jefferson was the governor of the most powerful state. In fact, what happened was the day before he fled Monticello, he refused to take a third term as governor. He said that he was not – and wasn't a man of military training, and he realized at this point 
that it would be better for someone who was a military man to become governor. The bottom line, however, was that as a result, Virginia was left leadership leaderless at its darkest hour. Mm-hmm. The legislature, which I mentioned, had fled to Stanton over the hills. Um, they learned that Jefferson didn't take a third term. So there were days that were passing where they were trying to figure out what was happening. And they eventually did appoint another gentleman, Thomas Nelson, who had a military background, to be governor of Virginia. But there was a time of great confusion. It took time to tell Nelson, who was elsewhere, that he'd become governor. So Jefferson, in his flight, had left Virginia in a very perilous state, and he was harshly, harshly criticized this for decades. In fact, when he ran for president two decades later, um, his opponents called him a coward, and they brought up this flight time and time again. And Jefferson tried to explain his actions, all the things that happened. But it certainly was something that Jefferson was concerned about explaining until nearly the day that he died. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Actually, I wanted to talk a lot about that. Uh, so uh, if I remember correctly, Cornwallis is defeated at uh, Yorktown, and that's in 1781 or something? That's right. Yeah. It's- it's in October of 1781, several months after Jefferson took flight from Monticello. Right, exactly. And so uh, then uh, what happens to Jefferson immediately after the war? What does he do? Well, after the war, after he fled Monticello, he went to another plantation south of Monticello, and he wrote up a defense of his actions, and he wanted to present this to the legislature. He finally got to do this in December of 1781. But since there had been the victory at Yorktown two months earlier, the legislature, which had launched this investigation into Jefferson's conduct and seemed poised to strongly rebuke Jefferson, now the legislature said, basically, never mind, we think you've acted honorably, and basically wanted to forget the whole matter. But Jefferson's honor had been challenged, and he insisted on standing up in that legislature and going through point by point why he did what he did. He explained the militia often was difficult to call out, that the Navy was worthless, all the problems um, that played a role. Jefferson also, uh, there was plenty of blame to go around, and Jefferson also had his own things to explain. The bottom line, however, is because of the victory at Yorktown, a lot of the matter was dropped, and Jefferson was able to recover his reputation gradually. He said that the wounds left on him as a result of all this would only be cured by the, quote, all-healing grave. He said he had, quote, not a particle, unquote, of interest in re-entering politics. But eventually he did decide to re-enter politics. He became, um, he took a diplomatic post in France. He eventually became Secretary of State, Vice President. And 20 years after these tumultuous events that caused him to flee Monticello, he did um, become President of the United States. Right. So it took a long time, but he eventually did decide to re-enter politics in that way. Yeah, but he, uh, th- so th- this is a very interesting moment because um, you- you'll pardon this contemporary analogy. My colleagues are, would probably kill me if they heard this, but uh, he, he, as he's running for uh, president, he becomes vice president and then president. Um, again, you'll pardon this, but he's kind of swift-boated, isn't he? Well, what, <laughs> you see what I mean? I mean, he, he really – we don't, he I, the, thing, the thing I want you to talk about is how rough and tumble uh, politics was at the time. That, 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 um, it's not that there's nothing new under the sun, but uh, there were things said about him which I guess weren't true. Um, well, there were things that were – he was viciously attacked. Yeah. Um, you know, some people are aware that you know, there were uh, articles spread about uh, allegations even at the time that he re- had a relationship with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings which he himself never directly addressed in his lifetime. There was also, and by some of the same people, a lot of articles written about his flight from Monticello. Mm -hmm. One of his enemies called him the, quote, coward of Carter's Mountain. (laughs) And that was a mountain that was uh, adjoining Monticello, and and he was attacked again and again. What Jefferson um, 
tried to explain, he said these were attacks by his political enemies. He ran, I mentioned earlier, as an anti-Federalist. He was concerned about Federalists, including John Adams, um, wanting to gain too much power uh, in the nation's capital. And he wanted there to be um, the states have power and to be this broad umbrella um, uh, in the nation's capital, but not to be a great, strong federal power. So he said, the Federalists who are attacking me are attacking me because they don't want me to win. And so he strongly rebuked that, but it was a very vicious uh, sort of campaign. One of the campaigns we have today, but if you can imagine all the things that were hurled at Jefferson, there are people who said that he was an atheist. We discussed this earlier. The people who said that he was a coward, that he fled, you know, as Virginia's darkest hour, all of these things. And there were reasons that, to say some of these various things, but it was pretty, really tough stuff. I mean, you could, you just imagine um, how that might have been spread even further in today's media environment, but it was just as tough, if not tougher, uh, back then. He certainly had to endure uh, an awful lot, but he thought it was worth it because he really was concerned that what he'd fought for in the Revolution in 1776 would be undone by strong Federalists. So when he ran for president, it was um, in large part based on what he learned. One of the things that he was really concerned about, and I make a point of this at the end of the book, what's, what's one of the lessons he learned from going through these dark hours uh, in the Revolution of Virginia. And what I write about is that he did learn that there's a time at which uh, you do need to have some kind of strong um, authority, even though he was an anti-federalist, that there are times when you do need to strongly take the reins. And he wrote a letter to someone else who became governor of Virginia later, in which he said, you know, for example, during an invasion, you can't wait for every um, bureaucracy and the council or the legislature to prove everything, if there's an invasion, you just have to go ahead and do things yourself. Mm -hmm. That's something that he learned the hard way uh, as governor. He also was very concerned that the country might be pushed by Federalists um, into a, another war against a great European power that perhaps uh, the country could not win. He was very concerned that Federalists would be too anxious to go to war against a great European power. So Jefferson's governor, yes, he set the Navy against the Barbary Coast pirates and so forth, but he did keep the country uh, out of a war uh, against uh, European powers, and part of the way he did it was very controversial. He used embargoes, he did treaties, things that he was harshly criticized for by some, but he said, he wrote this letter in which he said, I think one war enough for the life of one man. So he'd been to the Revolutionary War, he was concerned that another war perhaps the United States would not survive. And so he ran for president, and he did keep the country out of that war. Now, later we had the War of 1812 after he left the presidency, so you can see why he was concerned about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but this was one of the reasons, I think, it's because of his experience during the revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, th one of the questions um, th that I had uh, when I was reading the book is that it uh, is true that his honor uh, was challenged um, by... Uh, Contemporaries at the time, people like um, Henry, but also I was thinking of the, uh, I don't know if you'd call him a journalist or not, James Callender, who, or, who, who was quite well, a guy. Callender is, is the same person who wrote some of the um, articles about the alleged relationship with Sally Hemings, is just one of the slaves. Um, Jefferson would say, you know, these were people who wanted a federalist type of government and so forth, but yes, he was strongly trying to um, argue against what they were saying not just the specific allegations, but also 
saying that they wanted a certain type of government that he thought would be mm-hmm. bad for the country. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, and he generally takes the high – in fact, he always takes the high road here with, with these things. But, yeah, the question that I had was um, in this culture of honor, and his honor had been challenged, uh, people were still dueling. Uh, why didn't Jefferson ever um, challenge anyone to a duel? Do you know this – well, he, I, I really don't know the answer to this question. Yeah, this question. Well, there, there certainly were plenty of others who were yeah. chased in duels um, at the time. Uh, it's not something that um, that he did himself. He wanted to defend his honor in other ways to to explain. He wrote letters. One of the persons who who was most one of the most harshest criticisms of him came from um, a former ally during the Revolutionary War, and this person wrote uh, a book basically where he castigated uh, Jefferson's actions. And almost to the day he died, he was trying to rebut that book. And he actually had that person's son come to Monticello just days before Jefferson died, where he tried to get the son to revise his father's attack on him. So it just shows you many, many, many years later, Jefferson was still trying to set history straight. So he did this not through duels, but he tried to talk to historians, biographers of the time, all sorts of folks trying to explain his actions. So as an historian writing all these years later, I still feel like I can hear his voice because I read the letters he wrote to contemporary historians and biographers where he tried to explain his actions. Clearly, this is something he knew would be written about as long as people were writing about him. Mm -hmm. Let let me ask you this as a journalist and also a historian because you're uniquely able to answer this question. Do you see echoes of this kind of thing sort of structurally in American presidential politics today? And I'm speaking specifically of this a tendency to use people's pasts, I won't say against them, but as a, a measure of their character. Is this, a, is this something you oh, see? Sure. Yeah. sure. You know, I think it's understandable that if you're, gonna, if you're running for president, that your life is going to be part of uh, what you're running on. Um, some people who run for president have held elective office. Some people haven't. But it's, it's, it seems fair to me, if you're going to run for president, to have your life examined, because I think you're shaped by those experiences. So, I mean, I've written, for example, I co-authored a biography the newspaper did of John Kerry, and my part of the project was writing about his ancestry from the time he was born himself right up through when he became a young man. And I think that's all relevant because it tells you how that person's shaped. Mm -hmm. So if you and I were talking about the types of people we are, we might say, well, here's where I came from, and here's how I was raised, and here's how it affects me. So I think that's, that's very understandable. Now, obviously, some of that can be also used against you. But you are who you are, and it seems to me to be, you know, parts, not just the positions you took on certain votes, but how you were shaped and the things you did. And then putting all that in a fair context, you know, helps us better understand. So I know as a journalist and just as a citizen that I want to know a lot about, you know, that person. Where did they come from? I mean, you know, for example, uh, Barack Obama, he wrote an autobiography, and he wrote a lot about how he grew up and so forth. So he saw in his instance that that's very relevant, and people find that of interest, and some people find it, maybe find it controversial, some people find it laudatory, and you can have your own opinions about it. But I think there'd be a lot of agreement that it's very, very interesting. And I think that's the case for most people who run for president, that, you know, that's an extraordinary thing to get to that point. How were they shaped? In some cases, you know, their father was president or their family had a history in politics. All sorts of things play into that. And I know me, I just as a curious person, I want to understand that. So I think it's relevant. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Obama because I've said this before on this show. He was, I'm from Kansas, and he was, his grandparents were from Kansas, and he was raised by them at least the later part of his life. So when I hear him, I hear 
the people I grew up with. He has a little bit of a twang, this Midwestern twang. People don't recognize it, but I think everybody mm-hmm. from Kansas hears that. And also the kind of uh, plain spoken and in some sense uh, oddly conservative values that he has. People are kind of disappointed by them, but I certainly recognize them myself. Another example that comes to mind is I, I read recently uh, an article on uh, Slate or some other uh, publication, I don't know which, uh, about <laughs> – Maybe it wasn't Slate, but uh, Elena Kagan and how she wrote uh, uh, a paper or her senior thesis in college that said some nice things about socialism. Um, and, I, and I thought to myself, well, who didn't <laughs> at the time? So, uh, you know, we want to be careful about using this information. And, and I think that the word context is key here. You really have to understand it in its own time and at the place in the life course that the person was when they wrote what they wrote or said what they said. Um, we really do change. I mean, I look back on things that I wrote. 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, and I can hardly believe it. It's like it's a different person. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, do, I do really feel that it's important to contextualize that things, and, and you've done a terrific job with, with, um, with Jefferson. Um, I want to uh, thank you for being on the show. It's been terrific talking to you, and it's a terrific book. Uh, let me ask you our um, final traditional question here on New Books in History. What are you working on now? Well, right now I'm the um, deputy bureau chief in the Washington Bureau of the Boston Globe. So that's a new position for me. That keeps me busy. Um, maybe I'll do another book, maybe in the Revolutionary War, maybe not. I, I just don't know. Um, I've learned an awful lot. And just like a reporter looking at different stories that I might look at for tomorrow, I'm, I'm thinking about different things. So right now, I'm, since I've done the book, I'm focused more on current events, and I'll probably come back to history at some time in our future. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope so. Let me uh, editorialize for just a moment while I have you on the phone, because this is something I actually feel um, very strongly about. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, people talking about the decline of um, journalism and newspaper journalism, and uh, they, don't, they, they often are, uh, don't know what to do about that. Well, I, I do know what to do about that, and that is subscribe to your paper, your local paper or a national paper like the Boston Globe. Um, I do, and I do it because I used to work with journalists, and that is how journalists like Michael um, actually uh, make their brass. And if you uh, think that it's important to save American journalism, I don't know if it's really in peril, but if you think it's important to support it, you should subscribe to your paper. That's what you should do. I mean, I I don't – that seems commonsensical to me, but um, pardon that, a little bit of editorialization. And I'd like to say Michael did not prompt me to say that. (laughs) <laughs> I just said that on my own. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you. Yeah, all right. Well, anyway, uh, Michael Cranish, thanks very much for being on the show. The book is Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. Uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Cranish about his new book, Flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week.